Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by author Elizabeth Miki Brina. She's the author behind the new memoir, Speak Okinawa. She's the recipient of a Breadloaf Rona Jaffe Foundation Scholarship and a New York State Summer Writers Institute Scholarship, and she's joining us from New Orleans. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I think we need to start with your parents in this memoir. (laughs) So why don't you tell us where your parents met? They met at a nightclub where my mother was working as a cocktail waitress. And it was a nightclub that was right outside where uh, the army base, where my father was stationed. And it was a nightclub that was actually owned by my uh, mother's older sister. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And and where was it? What country were they in? The city of Kadena in Okinawa. How do they go from meeting in a nightclub to getting married? (laughs) It's actually a very loaded question. I think there was an immediate attraction. If you've seen pictures of them, they're absolutely gorgeous. Both of them are, are stunning. So there's the immediate physical attraction and also... A kind of a mutual objectification, too. My mother had, growing up on this island that was militarized by the U.S. military, just soldiers and Marines and personnel everywhere, and how subjugated her her island was to them and to the country of Japan. I think she saw America and Americans as very powerful and strong and people who had like agency where she did not. She talked about how she always wanted to marry an American. When she started working at this nightclub, it sounds so fantastical, right? She started working at this nightclub and she said that she, when she was 16, she made a thousand paper cranes. In Japan, if you make a thousand paper cranes, you're granted three wishes. And one of them was to marry an American. Like that's how much it was, this dream growing up. And I think she saw it as her way out, a better life, a different life. From my dad's side, He had just been fighting in the Vietnam War. And so I think there was a lot of guilt and regret and this need to save and protect. So there was that in the background. But also they talked a lot about how they noticed that they were different from everybody else. My dad said that your your mother was different than the other cocktail waitresses. She was she was more serious. She was more subdued. And my mother said the same thing about my father. You know, he didn't swear. He wasn't like vulgar, very polite, all that stuff, individual and social, historical, uh, all, all colliding mm-hmm, <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in, into one uh, space. Yeah. And There is that question that some people sometimes have in that situation where your mother really wants to marry an American, but she also would really love to get away and go make a better life for herself. And and do you think that people, family members of theirs questioned their love for one another, given the circumstances? Yeah, definitely on my mother's end. I mean, my mother's been very open about it her whole life of like, I don't know if I really loved your father um, at first. This is a good guy. Um, he'll, uh, um, he'll do right by me. And he did. I think ultimately he did, even though it was very, very hard for her. And with my father too, I, I know growing up, I always questioned it because I thought he married her. And it was a very condescending view that I had because of how I thought of my mother growing up. 
that he married her just to save her, that she wasn't good enough for him. And I know that my grandfather thought that about her too, because my father was so well-educated that he should have been with someone that was at his level, so to speak. And that was simply because I just didn't give my mother enough credit. She's an amazing, courageous, strong woman. Like, who wouldn't want her to be their wife? Yes, but of course, as a little kid, you see her as a person who's struggling to speak English while you can, and and all those dynamics that come from moving to a foreign country and starting again. Mm -hmm. Do you happen to have a copy of your book nearby? I do, I do. (laughs) I I wanted to have you read, There's a you have a great description of your mother and father's dynamic. If you read the first paragraph of section five, which is on page 43. Okay. I am five years old. I'm sitting in the front part of a big truck in between my father who is driving and my mother who leans her head against the window. We are moving to a new town, a new state. My father has found a better job, a better place for us to live. He loves the future. He craves newness and possibility and adventure. He is happy. He is always happy when he is taking care of his family, so he drives. My mother has no choice but to follow him. She already made her choice when she married him. She doesn't love the future. She accepts it. She has moved from Okinawa to the United States as his wife, the wife of a soldier. She has moved from Manhattan to Phoenix to Chicago to Plainsboro, following his jobs, his dreams. She knows she can't go back to her poor island, her poor family. She is not happy. But maybe she is more relieved than resigned. So she leans her head against the window. Yeah, it's a great description of the dynamic of the three of you together. And of course, you're really little in that truck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you are your parents' only child. So how would you describe how you fit into their dynamic when you're a kid? What's your role in the family, would you say? My role in the family? I mean, I was everything to them. I was their whole world to both of them, to my father and my mother. That was actually really hard growing up to be so completely loved by uh, two people. It's just having like this magnifying glass, this spotlight, you know, it's just constant uh, attention and, and scrutiny and love, love, love. I felt very obligated to make both of them happy. You know, I felt very guilty if I couldn't. I think I had noticed from a young age that I was more important to them than they were to each other. That was really hard. And also with the dynamic of my family and how my mother was and my father was and the way that I perceived both of them, I always gravitated more toward my father. We just were friends. Uh, we had a great rapport together. We we liked to talk about the same things. We viewed the world very similarly. And this is, has everything to do with how my father kind of dominated the rearing. And like, I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, let me do it. Uh, so but my mom was always the third wheel. Mm-hmm. And I was aware of it too growing up. And, and that made me feel incredibly guilty as well. It's just, But I also, for so long, I didn't know how to connect to her. I didn't know how to talk to her, like the, the language barrier and the cultural barrier. Um, so I felt so estranged from her. But at the same time, I'm like, uh, I should probably have a relationship with my mother, but I don't know how. I felt caught in between them a lot of the times. Even now that I'm older and we figured things out, we, um, they talk to me at the same time 
they're doing completely different conversations and they talk to me at the same time. Like they're asking me questions on completely different topics. And I'm like, you know, I just, stop. <laughs> I, 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 get, I get very overwhelmed and stressed, but at, at this point, like I, I can call them out on it <laughs> and, and uh, say one at a time. Mom, you go first. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. You have real questions in this book about why your father didn't encourage you to learn Japanese when your mother was sort of stranded as an island by herself in that regard. Why do you think he didn't? I think there are a lot of reasons. <sighs> There's the subliminal, it's not as important as English. English is the most important. It's more important that my mother learned English than I learned Japanese. So that sort of that uh, um, ethnocentrism happening, absolutely. Then there was the fact that my father's father, my grandfather, he moved to New York City from Italy. His native language was Italian, and this hindered him. He didn't graduate from high school till he was 22 years old. And so I think my dad had that in the background with my grandfather probably being like English, like you must learn English. And and there was silly things that psychologists were saying, child psychologists, like it'll confuse children if they learn more than one language at the same time. And then I think it was just it's just too hard. It's so hard to manage. And perhaps maybe it was an afterthought too. I don't think he fully realized the rift that it would cause between me and my mother. Yeah. One of the interesting things that you point out and that really, really bothers you as a kid is that your mother can't pronounce your name. Mm -hmm. How does your mother say your name? Elizabeth. Why would they decide on a name that she had trouble pronouncing? I think that was like another thing that having to do with my father's just obliviousness, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I think that maybe part of him knew that it was going to be hard for me. And he, he's like, let me give her the best shot. I have a Japanese middle name, but it was very important to him that I have a quintessential American childhood, like as much as, the, as I could have, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to embrace and foster this multicultural childhood. And maybe he was taking cues from me, too, because all I wanted was to be very normal American. <laughs> um, yes. but yeah, that's it. And I don't think it was a question. He, he thought, oh, well, my, my mother's name is Elizabeth, and it's a family name. It's a family tradition, and that's what we should name her. Uh, my mother apparently didn't have any protests. She loved my grandmother, my father's mother. They had a, a strong connection. She had said many times before that my grandmother was the only reason she stayed in the United States. Mm. She would not have lasted without her. She, My grandmother is a very kind, empathetic woman. So I think that, that she wanted to honor her in that way as well. Yeah. Well, and for you as a kid, who's definitely trying to appear as normal American as possible, what was it like to have a mother that had trouble pronouncing your name or that seemed apart from the other people that were around you at the time? She disappointed me constantly. And I don't think I was very fully aware of it. I knew that I was different. I knew that, that my family looked different, but I wasn't connecting the dots as to why. Uh, I just knew that she was the reason and I blamed her for it. And I was disappointed in her. I think I had that feeling of like, why can't she 
learn English? <laughs> Why can't she be American? Why does she have to be this way? I didn't think that this is something that she has no control over. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was that. And then wanting to fit in and please too, I was, I'm liking the attention that whenever my friends made fun of the way that she talked, I laughed with them. I made fun of her with them. That was how I felt like I gained acceptance by doing these cruel, cruel things, saying these cruel things about her. Yeah. This might be an impossible question to answer, but I was just thinking, what if your parents were as they are, but instead of coming to the United States, your father had stayed in Okinawa? Are there personalities such that you would still be aligning yourself with the American side? Or do you think that you would have been embracing, you know, the Okinawan heritage instead and the American side would feel weird? Hmm. That's such an interesting question that I've thought about a lot and it's hard to come up with an answer because I'm so, I'm so American. <laughs> I can't, I, you know, I can't imagine being anything else, but what's hard too, and, and, and this is coming completely from within my Americanness is that it just seems to usurp and take over everywhere. Like every time I've traveled abroad, it just feels like that there's some distinctiveness of being American. It's so oppressive <laughs> um, that I that I think it, it would inevitably seep into uh, everything, especially since Okinawa is 20% American with the military, all the military bases there. But at least the Okinawan, if not a little bit more dominant, it could have been equal. Mm -hmm. And at least I would have spoken Japanese and my mother would have been able to communicate with her daughter in her native language. And she would have been surrounded by her community and what she was familiar with, what she knew about and could be confident in navigating. So at least there would have been that. But I also wonder if maybe I would have grown up with the same romanticization that my mother did growing up in Okinawa of just America. I don't know how it would have been when while I was growing up, but I know that visiting my family, there still is that kind of twinkle in their eye, like, oh, America. Yes, the American family is coming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. They they have this idea of who I am because I grew up here. And there's like this tiny bit of awe. Mm -hmm. You mentioned another problem since we're sort of on this and you feeling and are so American, but also growing up, you are constantly having people asking you where you're from. Mm -hmm. and what was that like? Mm, I think it just... It was just a reminder, right, that I'm, I don't fit in, I don't belong, I'm different. Because every now and then I could try to forget and, uh, and just lose myself a little bit and just be, and then to hear something like that, it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> um, uh, um, I forgot how I look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, but, but a great deal of the time I was very hyper aware anyway mm -hmm. of just how I looked and how everybody else in the room looked and feeling very exposed so that when someone did ask me, it was almost like a relief too. like the ice is broken. The elephant in the room has been announced. Yes. You write it in such a great way. You write white was how I viewed the world, no matter what the world saw when it looked at me. When did you realize that part of your perspective and your discomfort with your mother maybe was internalized racism of your own? Oh, that was such a long time coming with like tiny little snippets um, here and there. But I think it really, probably when I moved to Oakland, 
it was the first time I experienced diversity. It was the first time I met people who were half Asian, but also everything and all the co-mingling. But it was the first time as well that I confronted that racism is very real and alive. I think that because of where I grew up, it was taught to me as something very past, <laughs> um, uh, very past tense. You know, this kind of stuff didn't happen anymore. And it was usually black and white, um, both in the races, but also the complete lack of nuance of, of what racism is. And I think that's a discovery that I could only come to by being with like other people of color, sharing the experience and being able to talk about all these different gradations of it and how we absorb it. I felt it throughout my life, but I think that's when I could finally articulate it, that this is something that, that had happened to me. Tiffany joins me now. Hey, Tiffany. Hi. This is an urgent, urgent announcement. Okay. What's going on? For the listener who's been with us every week for weeks and have been hearing us talk about their chance to learn a language in three months, learning a language with the ability to earn 100% of their money back this is the last time I'm going to remind them before the deadline of April 16th. So what are we talking about here? Well, let's say you listening really would like to learn a new language. You want to be able to have a real conversation. You want to be able to speak in Spanish when you go to Mexico when this pandemic is over. Well, this is your chance to do it through Lingoda. Lingoda is the number one trusted European language school with German stamp of quality and very affordable prices. Right now, Lingoda will pay you back if you sign up and attend all your classes. How do you do it? Well, you sign up for either a super sprint or a sprint. If you sign up for a super sprint, that means you're going to take a language class every day, 30 days a month for three months. And if you do that, you get 100% of your money back. Or if that seems too ambitious, you sign up to learn a language, attend 15 classes a month for three months, and then you get 50% of your cash back. Even if you don't manage to attend all of your classes, you end up paying a very low amount from around 10 euros for a small group class with a maximum of five students learning directly from a native speaking teacher online available 24 seven. So you can go any time of the day or night. They have proven methods and expert design curriculums that can get you some real results. So Tiffany, you have done two classes with Lingoda. You did kind of intermediate French and very beginning German. What's your takeaway? What were those classes like? Honestly, it was really surprising how much it felt like I was in an actual class. Mm. It was, of course, over Zoom, which everything's really over Zoom right now. Yes. <laughs> so we're used to it by now. But there was the teacher there on video and also the other students in the class were speaking. I could see them. When I was speaking, they could see me. So it felt very much like a classroom situation. We're called on to speak or to read. Obviously, it depends on the level. So when I was doing French, the entire class was carried out in French because it was an intermediate level class, whereas German, not quite so much. There was a bit of English there when necessary. But, you know, you really had a chance to interact with the teacher. Both teachers were very friendly, were very nice, very clear, and showed, you know, an interest in how you were doing, wanted to make sure you understood what was going on. So it's not like one of those online courses that you go on and there's no person there. You're just sort of selecting multiple choice and hearing automated voice 
spewing out phrases. It wasn't like that at all. It was a real teacher who was there and engaging with you. It was probably the closest you can come to actually physically attending a language course. And like you said, there were only five people in the class, so you get a lot of personal attention. I've tried several of those automated online programs, not to mention ones that back in the day were on CD, <laughs> where I'm driving <laughs> around in my car and think, if I listen to Thai long enough, I'm going to get this. Uh, <laughs> but... Yeah, it really is that back and forth. I mean, I don't even know how many times somebody has given me the advice that if I really want to learn a language, I need to find a native speaker and do an exchange. Mm -hmm. And that's not the easiest thing to do, particularly in the United States. You know, if I want to learn German, hard to find a native speaking German, at least in Seattle. Mm -hmm. That kind of one-on-one -on -one engagement, I think, is what you're really highlighting. Mm -hmm. That it's not just a program that you're hoping you're doing well. It's like one where you can tell how you're doing. Yeah, as you go along. for sure. And the classes are very well organized. You can tell that there's a lot of thought that was put into them. They're very thorough. And having the teacher there is what really makes all the difference, though. So more than 40,000 people have participated in previous Lingoda sprints. You could be in the next wave. You need to sign up before April 16th. Spaces are limited, so that's coming up quick. And the sprint is going to begin on April 28th. This is your chance to learn a language and get all of your money back. There is a deposit that you have to put down. If you succeed in attending all of your classes, you also get that back. But just in case, we have a discount code that you can use on your deposit when you sign up. The discount code is bittersweet. You'll find a link for more information or to sign up in our show notes. And I would also like to point out that the classes are taking place at all different times of day. So if you're thinking, I'm in Australia, or I'm in South Africa, or I'm in Hawaii, they're not going to have a class at the time that I need to take it. Even though it's a European company, they have teachers teaching at all different times of day. So the classes are running at all different times of day. So you can pretty much always find something that's convenient for your time zone. Yes, that's so good to know. So use our code bittersweet, find that link in the show notes for more information or to sign up. I want to hear from you if you do this. I'm excited about this opportunity. Right now they are offering German, French, Spanish, English, or Business English. Those are the languages that you can take. So just find the link in our show notes and make sure you use our code bittersweet when you sign up to get a discount off of your deposit. Now back to the show. Why did you decide to call the book Speak Okinawa? Uh, um... That, t that title, that was, I had, uh, I was like, what am I going to call this book? <laughs> um, well, there's a lot of themes with the speaking, the communication, the silence between me and my mother, learn learning how to express ourselves to each other, that kind of speak, and how Okinawa has been, especially to me, but to so many people, like so voiceless throughout history. They were a colony for centuries, and then when they had finally were annexed by Japan, their history just replaced by Japanese history, even though it wasn't the same. And I write passages, chapters from Okinawan perspective, from you know the we, uh, first person, plural. So there was that, just evoking the, the voice of Okinawa. It was all this memory, all this history that I needed to realize and confront in order to be able to understand myself. You trace the history of Okinawa throughout the whole book, the, all the wars, the loss of life, and like you said, their autonomy as an individual place. 
-hmm. I love what you do in the writing there. Maybe we should read an example of it. I, I just would pick one paragraph, but you can choose a different one if you want. But I was thinking the top paragraph on page 71. Okay. Just because it's short and it just gives a great example of how you write the Okinawa sections. Okay. During the day we hide. We hide in caves. We hide in tombs. We hide in shelters and tunnels. We hide in ditches and holes. We dig with our bare hands. We huddle together, 30, 40, 50 of us crammed into our hiding places. The ground shakes and we tremble. We hear the screeching, the rumbling, the explosions. We hear the flames burst and crackle. Sometimes we hear their strange voices outside our hiding places and our chests pound and pound, and some of us die from fright. It's so powerful, and it's such an interesting choice to write it that way, particularly because so much of this book is about your alienation from mm -hmm. this part of your heritage. Why did you decide to write it that way in the, in the we, like we together? I knew that I had to write about Okinawan history in this memoir, even though it's a memoir, right? It's, it's supposed to be a first-person account. But learning this history was everything. It, ha it has so much to do with who I am and, and how I understand myself and my mother. Before knowing it, I had no idea where all my mother's pain came from. And then subsequently where my pain came from. I had no idea where it came from. And I just blamed her for it. I just thought it was her fault. So learning the history helped me understand her and forgive her, even though there was nothing to forgive. And it had everything to do with the fact that it's still very much alive and perpetuating with us. My, my mother, she was born three years after the Battle of Okinawa, but she was born with this whole island just stunned with grief and so much violence and poverty. And then she witnessed the militarization and absorbed all that sadness to that, that kind of powerlessness, which was transferred to me. That set me up for how I'm going to navigate the whole world, how I'm going to live my life. So it really is part of who I am. And I couldn't escape that. And I wanted the history to feel that close, that it is part of who I am. It's not separate. So that was part of the we choice. And also, because I am gathering so many different accounts and memories, reading history textbooks and memoirs, even novellas, and compiling all the images that people saw. So it is a we, it's a, it's a collection of everybody that I came across and saw what they saw. Your mother obviously made a sacrifice, at least leaving her family behind to come to the United States. Do you think that that's a sacrifice that now that she's been here for so long, how does she feel about that decision now? She's so strong. And I think that she is acceptance. These are the choices I made. And this is my life now. So there's a profound acceptance on her part. I think in a lot of ways that moving here maybe saved her life. Uh, as hard as it was here, I don't think she knew how hard it was going to be. I don't think she knew how lonely she was going to be. But at the time, it was very much about survival. And Okinawa is a lot different now than it was then. You know, two of her sisters died. Excuse me, three of her sisters died. One of them died from pneumonia when she was 15. One of them died of cancer when she was 45. One of them died of uh, liver failure when she was 55. And her other sister had a stroke 
And this is because of how traumatized they were from the aftermath of the war and growing up in such poverty. And I think she just made the best choice that she could just to have the best life that she could. So it was a tremendous sacrifice. She did, she did lose a lot, but I'm hoping that what she gained came close to what she lost. I am. Mm-hmm. I didn't know even a fraction of the history that you have in this book about Okinawa, but I mean, discovering all of these just horrific tragedies that you list throughout the history, did that change your perspective on America? Oh, yeah. I don't know if it... When I started writing the book, I didn't have the greatest perspective of America. You know, I started writing it in um, 2015. My eyes were somewhat open to all the injustices and the atrocities caused by the United States. But what I did realize is how far reaching it is. And I didn't even know this about my own heritage, what had happened to Okinawa. And I can only think how many more places that this is happening to throughout all time across the world. I think it gave me appreciation of just the connectedness of it all, of this this terrible machine of colonialism. One of the other interesting dynamics that you highlight about your mother is you write, for some reason, my mother will always trust me more than I trust her. Mm-hmm. There's two questions there, really. Why do you think that is? And what's an example of that? Hmm, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I think that my mother knows me, you know, especially growing up. I think she knew me more than I knew myself. She knew me more than I thought she knew me. Uh, and I think that's what I mean by trust. Like she had, she knew I was capable of, and like she, she knew what I could do, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, 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 and I think that's where the trust comes from is that I know what she's going to do. <laughs> uh, that kind of, that kind of reliability, like this is my daughter. She can't surprise me kind of thing. And, and, but for me with her, like, I have no idea. Um, uh, like, who is this woman, all of her complexities and internal world that I, I barely scratching the surface of? Uh, that's why I think that, yeah, she did trust me more than I trust her. I didn't know her. And not only did I, did I not know her, but I, I rejected her. I didn't want to know her. She knows exactly what to say. She's just so blunt and direct. I can only think of an example from the book now. It's right after I broke up with my fiance. I'm a complete mess. We're in Japan. I'm, I'm supposed to be in Japan with my parents and my fiance, but we break up right before. Uh, and so I'm now I'm just in Japan with my parents. And every time we check into a hotel, hotel clerks counts and it says only three persons. And it all it brings everything to the surface. And then she she looks at me. She just turns to me. And she goes, don't cry. I think that's like an incredible amount of trust there that it's going to work. She knew that I was about to. (laughs) And then she knew that if I just said, she just said that really fast at me, snapped at me, that it would shock me out of it. It does bring up the question, with your parents' marriage being as it is, do you think that watching their relationship affected your views on marriage or love? Yeah. They are a wonderful team, but they are very platonic and they're very independent. Their lives are very separate from each other, even though, I mean, I, I am have a, nothing but respect 
for the way that they are towards each other and the way that they've been able to make it work and they support each other. That took a long time for me to get to. The way I saw them growing up was that they didn't have anything in common with each other. Their lives were so separate. They had nothing to talk about except for me. That was the only common ground that they had. And yeah, they didn't have that like that passionate, romantic, um, just what I what I thought love was, and that and it definitely led me to seek that very fiercely. I could see in my mother more than my father um, how uh, lonely that made her. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guilt in this book. Yes, and I mean, even the last part of your acknowledgments is an apology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what? are you apologizing for? Mm. What are you feeling guilty about? Oh, so much. I feel guilty about the way that I treated her, the way that I thought of her. I feel guilty for all the time that was wasted of not knowing her and not us being home to each other. I feel guilty for all that time that was wasted in that sense. And also just because of the the sacrifice that she made, like it was all, you know, to have a better life and how hard I made her life. A lot of it, I think, was so, oh, if I move to America, my child will have this great life. <laughs> um, and it's OK. <laughs> but, but I don't know. Well, I'm like, is it was it worth it? But, you know, the existential guilt. Mm-hmm. And then and I also feel a lot of guilt, too, for. I'm sharing a lot of their pain and I'm sharing a lot of their life, but it's not ever going to be who they are really, you know, it's not, it's never going to be complete. Mm-hmm. I feel guilty for that, like not being able to show them, still not being able to show who they really are to the world. Well, and since your mother is so direct, <laughs> would she think that you owe her an apology? I don't think so. No, that, that's just, that's just who she is though. She's, she's so forgiving. Maybe one of the reasons why she doesn't think I need to be sorry is because I am. Mm. She knows I'm sorry. (laughs) And so she's like, so you don't need to be sorry anymore. (laughs) Uh, You got this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. So this book is really, really beautiful and so interesting as well. And it's so complex. Preparing to talk to you, I just thought there are just so many layers in here that we could talk about any aspect of these things that you explore. So everybody's going to just have to go read it. Mm-hmm. But you give a pretty big picture of your parents, at least from your understanding of them as a child. And some of the things are not flattering to any of you. <laughs> you know, it's certain things you say is this doesn't make your mother look good or this does not make your father look good. And same with you. So, yeah. You know, you have occasions where you would do not flatter yourself. Were you scared to put it out in the world? Yes, I was really scared but not so much for me. I was scared for them. Like I said before, for their secrets, I had a few meltdowns over it. <laughs> um, of just like, oh my God, what is going to happen when they read what I wrote about them? But for me, what I did, it was like, I have to write this. The need completely outweighed the fear. I wanted to explain myself. I wanted people to know for lack of a better term, it's kind of like a confession of I did this, this is why I did this, judge me. (laughs) Um, And and hopefully there's like forgiveness and redemption that comes from it. But mostly what I was scared of was their secrets. Yeah. And have they given you a a reaction? Have they both read it? My mom 
uh, she read it. This is the first book that she ever read. <laughs> and the, the plan was for my father to read it to her. But she decided for whatever reason, she's like, no, I'm going to I'm going to read it. She said she doesn't understand most of it. So that's <laughs> I mean. So that's good. <laughs> um, uh, but she said, it's true. She's like, it's okay. It's true. I'm not embarrassed. It's all true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that felt good because sometimes you, you wonder, I'm like, did I? Did, did I make that up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like, is that true? So that was huge. I, I feel really good about it. And I think uh, I, I was definitely more nervous for my father to read it than for her because of the journey that I'm taking of reconciling with my mother, but also you know, my father getting knocked off his pedestal. Mm-hmm. And I know that's probably going to be hard for him to see, but hopefully it'll... My mother even said, she's like, I kind of feel bad for your father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does kind of go from being like the absolute hero of the day yeah. to being a little more skeptical. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think He'll be all right. <laughs> He's a very understanding person, too. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll be pulling for you. I mean, it's a really, really good book. At the very least, they should be very proud of your talent. They are. And for those of you who are interested, uh, we are going to be giving away two copies of this book. So keep your eye on The Bittersweet Life social media. If you're not following it already, just look for The Bittersweet Life podcast. And Tiffany will let you know how to enter our contest to win uh, one of these two copies. Unfortunately, for you international folks, they're only shipping it domestically in the United States. So sorry, I'll try to get you an international one soon. But for those of you who are in the United States, one of the best books I've read this year. So Thank I you. hope you will enter to win a copy. And the book is called Speak Okinawa. Elizabeth Miki Brina, such a good book. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a delight. Thank you. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks for joining us. Please share the show. Tell your friends and family about this great discovery that you've made. And if you own a business, consider sponsoring the show. Sponsoring is a great way to reach an educated and diverse group of wonderful people living all over the United States and the world. Send us a note at bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. That's bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. Or visit the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net.